Well, today we are in week number three of this current series, as most of you are aware, where we are thinking together through Ephesians chapter number six about this topic of armoring up. Uh, Let me take just a minute and remind you of what we've learned over the last couple of weeks, and I want to build upon the things that we've learned uh, over the the first two Sundays that we've been thinking about this, you know, sort of line upon line, precept upon precept, and principle upon principle as we work through these passages together. But let me direct your attention to begin with to chapter 6 and verse number 13, where you'll find this command. He says in verse number 13, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor, the whole armor of God. And then in verse 11, you have a very similar command, put on the whole armor of God. Take unto you the whole armor of God and put it on. And last Sunday, I said to you that these two commands taken together say to us that the armor of God is available to us and that we are to pick it up and put it on. You with me? Pick it up and put it on. In fact, last Sunday I said to you to to preach for me and tell your neighbor, and I want you to do that again today, tell them, and do it like you're mad, again, say it like you're mad, tell them, put it on, tell them. (laughs) In the first service I saw this as well, some of you husbands and wives look like you're taking out frustration, like you've been wanting to yell at each other this morning, so put it on, dude, like you're talking to your kids. No, this is what Paul is saying, look, the armor of God has been provided for you, it's not, it's not what you create. Jesus has provided it. And so you and I just need to pick it up and put it on. We also learned last week that to put on the armor of God does not mean that we are literally, actually clothing ourselves with any kind of body armor. We're not actually putting on uh, armor. But the armor that he's speaking of is the quality or the characteristic or the nature of Christ. What Paul's reminding us of when he says to put on the armor of God is that we are to clothe ourselves in the likeness of Jesus and that we are to live our lives hidden, where we are hidden behind Christ. In the same way that a Roman soldier would have gone into battle and had really been anonymous to the person that he was fighting because he would have been so covered in the armor, his helmet covering most or all of his face, they wouldn't have known the person, they just would have seen the armor of the soldier. In the same way, the way that we should live our lives is not that we are out front, it's our lives and Jesus is our add-on. No, we're covered, we're hidden. It's the life of Christ and we are hidden in him. Paul says to cover ourselves in this armor and to hide ourselves in Christ. Now last week we talked about the first two pieces of the armor. And some of you weren't here. Some of you didn't write it down or you've forgotten it. So let me remind you of the first two. The first one is in verse number 14 where he says, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with the truth. That's the first piece of armor. It's the belt. What we call the belt of truth. For the Roman soldier, this was this wide, thick, uh, tall strap of leather around his waist that gave him support, strengthened his core, and helped him to stand firm. But it also held all the other parts of his armor. So his breastplate would rest on top of it. His sword would hang from the side of it. His dagger would be over here. He was wrapped in what Paul called a belt of truth. 
And in the same way, you and I, if we are going to stand for Jesus, we must wrap our lives in truth. Do you remember the word, what we learned last week? The word truth means very simply to live transparently, to be a truth teller, to live with authenticity, or to live where you're not uh, living in secrets. You're, you're unhidden. In other words, your life is an open book. He says that we are to be people who wrap our lives in truth. The second piece of armor that we learned about last week is the breastplate of righteousness. You see it in verse number 14, stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That we are to cover our lives in the righteousness of Christ. Now let me tell you what I've, I'm certain most of you know to be true, but maybe some of us are a little unclear about this. Let me make sure you understand it. Every person is born unrighteous. Do you understand that? Every person is born unrighteous. So we're, we're born with a sin nature. That's the reason you have to teach your children to tell the truth, but you don't have to teach them to lie. They'll figure that out on their own. You have to teach your children not to hit their sister. They will do it automatically on their own. There's this sin nature. You don't have to teach them not to take what doesn't belong to them. You have to teach them, uh, you don't have to teach them to take what doesn't belong to them. You have to teach them not to. It's the sin nature. So we're all born with an unrighteous nature. And eventually, as we get old enough, we begin to choose to sin, and so we are unrighteous by birth, and we are also unrighteous by behavior. All of us behave, have behaved, will behave in unrighteous or ungodly ways. Listen to Romans 1 and verse 18 that uh, describes it this way. It says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All right, so do we understand it? Let's all agree to this. Every person is unrighteous by nature and by choice. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. In Christ, God makes unrighteous people righteous. Amen? God takes unrighteous people and he declares them he washes us clean and he declares us to be righteous. So loved ones, you don't become righteous by being better. Even as, as, as you're better, you're still not perfect. So you're unrighteous. And all of your righteous deeds will never undo the nature with which you were born. You don't become righteous by being good. You become righteous when God says you are righteous. And that righteousness that we receive is given to us when we put our faith in Christ. It's imputed to us. I've illustrated it to you over the years with a sport coat, you know, that, uh, that before we met Jesus, we were not covered with his righteousness. We were unrighteous, barren before God. Well, then we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he came with his righteousness he didn't say straighten up and fly right and be better. He came with his own righteousness and he put that on us. And now we wear the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. Somebody else say, praise the Lord. That's a grace gift, right? I'm wearing the righteousness of Jesus. It only happens when we put our faith in Christ. Now, it's imputed to us at the moment of conversion, but secondly, it's, it's continued by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I, I'm, the Holy Spirit keeps me righteous in the sight of God. And then thirdly, we put on righteousness, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, 14, we put on righteousness daily by our decisions to walk in the righteousness of Christ or by our decision to live righteously. I'm not living righteously to become righteous. I'm living righteously because I have been made righteous. And that's what it means to put on the full armor of God or to put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right, so first two pieces of armor, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. Now, one last point of review before we get into verse number 15, and it's just to say, do you remember the reason that Paul tells us we ought to put on the full armor of God? Do you remember? What, what's the reason? Do you, yeah, somebody said it. It's to stand, right? Look at it in verse number 11, verse 13, verse 14. Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. That's a command. Why should you do it? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. Translation, if I don't put on the armor of God, I don't have any hope, any chance of standing against my spiritual enemy, the devil. I'm going to fall. I'm going to stumble. I'm going to backslide. I'm going to slip away if I'm not wearing the armor of God. Put it on so that you may stand. Again, uh, verse number 13 Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to do what? Stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore. So the command to put on the armor is so that Christian people might be able to stand in the faith of Christ. Stand against the temptations of the devil, against the culture in which we live, stand against the influence of our own flesh, our own fallen flesh, and stand for Christ all the days of our life. Now here's what that tells you. It tells you that the command to put on the armor is a Christian command. It is a command given to Christians. I need you to hear me. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you cannot put on the armor of God. A non-Christian, somebody who's not a follower of Christ, it is impossible for that person to put on the likeness or the nature or the armor of Christ. It's not that it's difficult, it's impossible to do. And so he's writing Ephesians chapter six to Christians. Now, one reason I know that is because Ephesians chapter 6 follows Ephesians chapter 2. <laughs> if you think about it, that little bit of knowledge will change your life. Chapter 6 follows chapter 2, okay? It's profound, I know. But I want you to go to chapter 2, and I'll show you why I said that. The content, not the chapter number, but the content of chapter 6 follows chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we know that he's writing to Christians. Look at it, verse number one, Ephesians 2, verse one. And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
according to the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our way of living in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, loved ones, this is who we were. I mean, Ephesians 2, he says, look, before you came to faith, you were not a child of God, you were a child of wrath. You were not an obedient person, you were a disobedient person. You were not someone who lived with virtue and morality, you were in fact a person who lived according to your own mind and your own ways and your own flesh. This is what all of us were before we met Jesus. That's the description. Look at verse four. But God, who is rich in mercy, anybody in the room glad God is rich in mercy? Amen? Not poor in mercy. He's not middle class mercy. (laughs) He is wealthy in mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now here's what salvation looks like. God takes an unrighteous, rebellious, sinning person, a person who is the son of his wrath, deserving his wrath, a person who lives for himself, God takes that person who's spiritually dead, makes that person alive with the risen Christ, and then elevates that person positionally and seats that person in heavenly places with Christ and calls us sons and daughters of God seated in the heavenlies. Now, why would God do that? I mean, think about it. Why would God take lives like our broken lives and and do such uh, great grace for us? Well, the next verse tells us, verse number seven, so that in the ages to come, that is throughout eternity, he might show or reveal the exceeding riches of his grace. So what is it, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. What is it that heaven ultimately will reveal about our God throughout all of eternity future? What will be the thing that eternity will resound with in proclaiming to be true about God? It is that he is rich in grace and in kindness and in mercy. And the message of that uh, grace and kindness and mercy will be revealed in the fact that he has taken dead sinners and made them alive in Christ. Verse eight, it is by his grace that you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now listen, I'm preaching Ephesians six today, not Ephesians two. Actually, I am preaching Ephesians two, but that's not really the plan. But I, I, I wanted to walk you through that so that you would understand where we've come from and what his grace has produced. And if you'll keep reading in Ephesians chapter two, look at verse number 11. Verses one through eight describe this this work of grace that's gonna be to his glory forever. But verse 11 says, so remember. Wherefore remember, never forget this. Wherefore remember that you being in time past were Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now verse number 11 divides the, the, the people, divides the church 
uh, divides the followers of Christ into two groups of people, Gentiles and converted Jews, okay? And he says, there was a time when you were a Gentile pagan, you were not even as close to God as a Jewish person might have been because they were born into this family of God's people, God's chosen nation. You were further away than they were, and yet God, verse 12, has brought you together. At that time, he says, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who at one time were far off have been made nigh or near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he, Jesus, is our peace. If you have a pen in your hand, circle the word peace. He is our peace. Jesus makes peace between the Jew and the Gentile. Jesus makes peace between the person and God. Verse 14, he is our peace, who's broken down the middle wall, who's made both one, broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity or hostility, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. For making himself of one, or of two, one new man, so making, circle it again in verse 15, so making peace. Verse 16, so that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the hostility thereby, and came and preached, circle it again, peace to them that were afar off and to them that were nigh. Jesus makes peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus preaches peace. And then if you go back even to Ephesians chapter one and verse number two, in his salutation, Paul says, grace be unto you and peace. You should circle it. Apparently, peace is a byproduct of our relationship with God. Apparently, peace is the fruit that should be born as a result of our knowing Jesus Christ. May I ask you, do you have peace? Are you at peace with God? Would peace be the word that you would use to describe the condition of your heart, your life? Is it one of peace? Well, it can be in Jesus. In fact, if you'll know Christ, if you'll give your life to Christ, peace is his promise. Galatians 5 and 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And this word peace is in fact that third piece of armor that we're to put on. Let me take you to chapter 6 and verse number 15 and let's read that one verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15. He says that we should stand having our feet shod or having on our feet, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Today, what Paul is going to say to us is that the, the Christian soldier, the follower of Christ, should be outfitted with the shoes or the sandals or the boots of peace. All right? Let's talk about it. Write it down in your notes, if you will, somewhere. Let's begin with the most elementary and simple truth in the passage, and then we'll go on to apply it. Paul reminds us that the gospel, the gospel is the good news 
of God's peace. I know that you know, most of you know, that the word gospel means good news. So when he says in verse number 15 that your feet would be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, he's really saying with the good news of God's peace. And the word peace in the New Testament is closely related to the Hebrew word for peace in the Old Testament, which most all of us know is the word shalom. But the word means the absence of hostility. It does mean that, the absence of of hostility. But it really is deeper than that. It means not only the absence of hostility, it means the presence of calm or the presence of rest. It means that we have a spirit of quietness. Our feet shod with the good news of God's calm and God's quietness. You know, maybe more than any other time in the last 80 years, our world, and certainly all of us, are aware of the need for peace, right? We've watched the absence of peace on our news screens as we've seen the war unfolding in Ukraine and we've seen the chaos and the killing and the shelling and the bombing and the missile strikes and, and, and the death and the turmoil. And maybe, maybe more than any other time in our lives, we have longed for there to be peace. We've longed for the hostility to, to end and for peace to return. Now listen to what the gospel does. This is the good news, that the gospel comes into our lives, it comes into our chaos, it comes into our sinful condition, and the gospel brings us peace. And you know what the gospel is. I I know you know what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15 defines it for us exactly. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to go prove it later, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, it'll tell you that. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried in a tomb. And Christ arose on the third day to give us eternal life. That's the gospel. And that message of the gospel, when we believe it and we receive it, you know what it brings? It brings peace. When we receive the gospel, the chaos subsides in our lives and the, and, and the battles begin to die down and the peace of God begins to reign. What kind of peace? Write it down. Number one, the gospel brings us peace with God. It does. And by the way, if you don't know Jesus, please hear me. You are at war with God. It may not be a conscious war. It may not be that you've said, I hate God and I'm bawling my fist up in his face. But loved ones, when you marginalize and exclude from your life the very creator of who you are and the maker of all things and you diminish his value and you say, I will live my life by my terms, not on his terms, then you have positioned yourself to be at war with this creator. We contend against his commands. He says, thou shalt not. And we say, well, you know what? I think I will. And he says, thou shalt. And we go, well, you know what? I don't think I feel like it today. We're at war with him. We, uh, he says, you shall have no other idols before me. You shall love me with all of your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your strength and put nothing before me. And we put a thousand things in front of him. We're at war with him. 
We resist his commands. We, we resist his kindness. We, we diminish his worth and his value by marginalizing him in our lives. We're at war. And yet, when we believe the gospel, when the good news of the gospel comes to us, you know what the first result is? It's peace. The battle is over with God. There's no more antagonism or hostility in this relationship with God. It brings peace with God. Romans 5 and verse 1 says it this way. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you have it? Are you at peace with him? It's the result of the gospel. Secondly, it brings us not only peace with God, but it brings peace in our hearts. You know, the survey that Lee shared a few minutes ago highlighted the fact that 97%, think of this, imagine this, 97% of the people surveyed said peace, having peace is, is important to me, somewhat important at least. Most of them said very important to me. That's almost everybody. And the 3% who said it didn't matter lied. It does matter. It matters to everybody. And yet, do you know the Bible says in Isaiah that there is no peace for the wicked? Did you know that? Isaiah says this, that the wicked are like the troubled waters. They have no rest, no peace. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Listen to me. Here's the beauty of the death, resurrection of Jesus. It is that we can be at peace with God and we can have peace in our hearts. It is the good news of God's peace. I mean, think about it. On the night that Jesus was born, come on. On the night that he came into the world as a baby, the angels said what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth what? Peace. This is God's desire. It's why he came, was to bring peace to our hearts. One day he'll come again. The Bible describes his second coming. And do you know what it calls him? What the title is that Jesus wears when he shows up as king of kings and lord of lords? He's called the prince of peace. It's what he does. Why live in chaos and embattled with God and in your soul when Jesus has come? To bring peace. Colossians says to us, chapter 3, verse 15, the peace of God can rule in our hearts. And Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe. I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on past it. I hope you understand it. It is that when he says that your feet ought to be shod with the gospel preparation of the gospel of peace, he's reminding you that this is what the gospel is. It's what it does. It brings peace. The second thing that Paul would say to us in Ephesians 6.15 is not only that the gospel is the good news of God's peace, but secondly, that the peace of the gospel gives us sure footing. The peace that we receive when we receive Christ as Savior in the gospel, that gives us sure footing. Verse 15, that your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The preparation, the word means with the firmness. That's what it means. Or the readiness, you're ready. You have a firm footing with your feet. Now, I, have no, I mentioned to you last week, I posed the question, why did Paul know the Roman soldier's armor piece by piece so uh, intimately? 
And we, we talked about the fact that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. He was under house arrest and he was chained to a Roman soldier. Every day he saw his armor up close and personal. He saw the shield, he saw the, the breastplate, he saw the helmet, all those things. You know what he also saw? He saw the soldier's shoes, his sandals. And I'm convinced that when Paul said that we need to have our feet shod with these shoes like the Roman soldier had, I'm convinced that what he, what he had in mind was that Roman soldier's sandal, which is known as a, a caliga or caligae. And it's the leather sandals that the Roman soldiers would wear. But what was unique about them is that nails, studded nails, little short nails, were driven through the soles so that it created what we would call cleats. It created a firm grip on the, on the ground. Now, in fact, we, I brought a picture this morning so you could see it. Here uh, is an ancient pair of uh, calige, uh, that, and you can see clearly the studs uh, that are still on the bottom of that leather. That, that was what the soldier would wear. Here's a more modern uh, interpretation of what it would have looked like. So imagine Paul every day sees this soldier putting on these shoes where he's got this grip on the ground like a soccer kid putting on cleats. And he said, that's what we need in the gospel. Man, when we, when we rest in the gospel, it gives us a firm grip so that when the waves of circumstance come or the enemy's attacks come, that we have a firm grip and it enables us to stand. And, and think, about, think about Paul's wording. I mean, in a passage where he's talking about evil schemes and wickedness and darkness and the powers of this world and the attacks of the enemy, he says, you know what you need? You just need your feet firmly gripped in peace. I love that. Somebody says, Pastor, you just don't know, man, the devil's against me this week. I'm having such a hard week. I get it, man. Life can be hard. But listen, if you're standing firmly in the gospel, you're good. The, the battles are going to come, but you've you got a firm foundation because your feet are rooted firmly in the gospel. Three things quickly that the sandals of peace provide for us. When, we're, when our feet are shod with the firm grip of the peace of the gospel. What does it provide for us? Well, write it down. When we're firmly grounded in the gospel, we don't have to worry in difficult times. We don't have to worry. When, when my feet are firmly founded in the gospel, worry can begin to go away. Can I ask you, don't answer out loud, do you, do you struggle with worry? Sure, a lot of us do. Do you know that the more firmly grounded we become in the gospel, the less we will worry? You're in Ephesians 6, turn probably one page to, to Philippians 4. Look at Philippians 4 and verse number 6. Be careful or worried about nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what will happen? The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Well, praise God. It means that when difficult times come, when hardships come into my life, when I'm disappointed or I'm hurt or I'm alone or I'm afraid or whatever, I, I, if I'm rooted in the gospel, I don't have to worry. I'm gonna pray. 
I'm going to be concerned. I'm going to be interested. I'm going to be alert and aware, but I don't have to fret and worry. Why? Because I'm rooted in the gospel and the peace of God is keeping my heart. If you understand, say amen. Got my cleats on. Got my gospel cleats on. I don't have to worry. Second thing that it does for us is that when we're firmly grounded in the gospel, we will not be as likely to stumble along the way. We we won't be as likely to to get off the spiritual path, to backslide. Psalm 119, verse 165 says this, great peace have they, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall cause them to stumble. Right? So I've got my feet firmly planted in the gospel. That gives me a firmness, a stability, and so I'm not gonna be led astray as easily because my feet are firmly in the gospel of peace. Thirdly, When we're firmly grounded in the gospel, we don't have to fear the enemy. Really, we don't have to fear anything. One of my favorite verses in the Psalms is Psalm 4 and verse 8, which says this, I will lay down and sleep in peace. I will lay down and sleep in peace. For you, Lord, only you make me to dwell in safety. Well, amen. When my feet are firmly grounded in the gospel, I have such peace in my heart. I don't have to worry about this and that. I'm not going to be led away so easily. And I'm going to go to sleep at night and I'm going to rest because I'm trusting and I have peace in the Lord. What a great verse, by the way, to teach your children, right? What they were scared of the monster under the bed or in the closet. Teach them Psalm 4 and verse number 8. So notice what Paul says. Verse number 15 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. He says that our feet should be shod. I love this word shod. Write this down lastly. It means to bind. Bind on the gospel shoes. Having your feet covered in, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Having those shoes bound or fastened onto your feet. These um, these Roman caligae, they would go on the, put their sandals on it, had a strap that came across the top of the foot, a strap that went around the ankle, and straps that wound up the calf. That sandal, that cleat, was firmly attached to their foot. You can imagine Paul seeing that soldier putting that on every morning and seeing how firm he stood and what a grip he had. And Paul was thinking, you know, Man, if God's people would just get that firmly grounded in the gospel, then we could have peace that would keep us grounded. Well, let me end by answering a really important question. I want to help you apply this. And that is to say, how then do we bind on the gospel of peace? How can I put my feet in the gospel firmly and be grounded so that I stand. I'm gonna give you three things quickly and I'm gonna be done. Number one, if you wanna put your feet in the gospel, number one, believe it and receive it. Believe it and receive it. Thank you, Joe. I, um, I brought a pair of golf shoes. Thanks, man. I brought a pair of golf shoes to, to the platform today. And... Um, these, these have the, the cleats. I know a lot of you, you guys and gals are golfers. And when you go golfing, you don't wear shoes like these. Because when you go to swing your club, 
your feet are just going to slide on that uh, dew of the, of the uh, tea box in the morning. You don't have any grip. So you always take your shoes off and you put on cleated or spiked golf shoes. Now let me tell you what some of you need to do. If y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. Some of y'all need to put on the gospel shoes. You do. You've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. You, you've, been, you've been around the store, the shoe store of religion long enough. You've been looking at it, trying it on, walking it out. And, and you've said, no, that was a little too restrictive, and that was a little too loose. And, and you're trying to figure out, you know what you just need to do? Stop shopping, just put the gospel shoes on. And what I mean by that, I mean just believe in Jesus, just trust in Jesus. Like, he died for your sins. You can't save yourself. He's done it for you. He was risen from the dead for your justification to give you eternal life. You're not going to heaven any other way. Stop resisting. Stop holding back. Just give your life to Jesus. Trust him. Put the shoes on. Okay? And that's the first step into getting grounded so that peace can be the mark of your life instead of battles and chaos and darkness and confusion and no, I want peace. Come to Jesus. Put the shoes on. That's the first thing. But here's what's true as well. Some of us in this room, we put the shoes on years ago. But we've been walking around on our laces for years. We, ne- we haven't tied them. We haven't tightened them down. So how do I tie the shoes? How do I make them firm on my feet? Number one, write this down. You tie your shoe by renewing the gospel in your heart. Renewing it in your heart. And you renew it daily. Yeah, I believed in Jesus. I came to Christ personally when I was 16. Man, that's been 40 years ago. Well, now I need to renew the gospel every day. You know what I mean by renew it? Martin Luther said this. He said, we need to renew, we need to remember the gospel every day because we forget it every day. We need to remember the gospel every day because we forget it every day. Now, why do we forget the gospel every day? Here's why. Because we live in a culture, and it's even true in our church culture, that our worth or value is measured by our success or our productivity. We live in a culture that says, you matter to me if you bring value to my life. You matter to this organization You have worth if you show success or productivity. We begin to then take that thinking and apply it into our relationship with God. And we say, yes, I know he saved me by by faith, but now I've got to keep living in such a way so that he'll continue to love me. I'm earning his love every day. Every day I need to remember this. He loved me before I ever loved him back. Amen. He loved me before I ever lived in a way that may please him, and he loved me before I even gave him the first thought. And that means that I matter deeply to him, and there is nothing that I will ever do that will cause him to stop loving me ever. That's the gospel. I'm safe in him. And when I, every day I get up and I say, Lord, thank you that you, you love me. I matter to you. I'm trusting in you. God, I want to live in a way that pleases you. I want to put on the breastplate of righteousness, but God, I'm going to tell you what's firm on my feet What's firm on my feet is this fact, I'm safe in you. I'm secure in you, all right? Put them on, that's number one. Tie them up, 
Remember and renew it every day. That's number two. Number three, give it away. That's when you tie the other shoe. When you take the gospel that you've received by faith and that you're renewing every day and you begin to give the gospel away. Because you understand, don't you, that you give away what you believe in. You share with others what, what matters to you deeply. And if we don't give it away, then we don't see a lot of value in it. And so if I understand the gospel and I remember the gospel and I've received the gospel and now I'm giving the gospel away, I've put on those gospel shoes, I've planted my feet and when the enemy comes, I'm firm. And when the temptations come, I'm standing in his peace. And when the worries come, I've got peace because my feet are firmly grounded in the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you understand, say amen. Strap on the shoes of the gospel. Tell your neighbor, like you're mad, put them on. <laughs>